0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Unauthorized Disclosure Podcast. I'm Kevin Gastola, and I'm very pleased to be joined by Tom Secker, who's the author of, or the co author of, National Security Cinema, the shocking new evidence of government control in Hollywood. Uh, and he, he wrote this, uh, put it together with Matthew Alford. And he also is uh, the, um, he, he runs spyculture.com. Welcome, Tom.
1: Hi, Kevin, and thanks for having me. It's good to be talking to you.
0: All right, so let's just start off. Um, I know you've done even numerous interviews with people. The, the book is actually quite fascinating, and there are, are details in here about collaborations between government agencies, particularly the CIA and Pentagon, and then movies and, and, and television works that – Are uh, largely uh, unknown, or just um, even if we knew nuggets and pieces about these collaborations, you're giving a full picture and presentation of the collaborations, the the, and and the work on sort of um, propagandistic elements of these features and pieces of entertainment. So let's begin just by having you outline for people who maybe are unfamiliar with the subject what you mean when you say national security cinema or since you're talking about television too, national security entertainment?
1: Well, I mean, it isn't a term that we invented, but it's um, I guess it refers to films and also other screen entertainment, especially television and more recently computer games, things like that, that promote either the institutions of the security state. So the military, the intelligence, FBI, all the rest of it, or promote ideas and ideologies and policies that are conducive and useful to those institutions. And this applies to both films that are supported by the government and are not supported by the government. But in the book, we do focus on the, as the subtitle says, the new evidence that we found of government control over a lot of products in Hollywood and in the entertainment industry more broadly. So, like I say, we are not just talking about government propaganda, but that is... I guess, the primary focus of the book. So that's what National Security Cinema is.
0: And it definitely varies. And we'll get into examples. Some of it's subtle and and some of it's obvious. Uh, But by and large, uh, what you were running up against in putting together this work is the commitment, which people may not be aware, the commitment of the government, uh, these agencies to keep Files related to these collaborations secrets, so in order to get these through like the Freedom of Information Act, which is a key tool for obtaining information, it was quite a struggle. Can you describe trying to get the files that you needed to produce this book?
1: Well, I mean, it's not a comprehensive book by any means. We took basically we accumulated as much evidence as we could of politically motivated script changes. Um, and not just script changes, but other means of changing the content of a movie or a, te- a television program. We took the all the best examples we had, but there must be dozens, if not hundreds more out there, because we have only a tiny fraction of the files that presumably exist. Because most of the stuff from before about 2002 has been deposited in an archive in a library in Georgetown, which is uh, curated and controlled essentially by a friendly academic, a guy called Lawrence Seward. And he's written a couple of books based on this archival material, but they have been essentially uncontroversial and kind of uh, like catalogs of just military involvement in cinema. So all of that is now gone. You can't get it through the Freedom of Information Act because it isn't held by the Pentagon anymore. It's all in this library in Georgetown. So that's one big problem. The other big problem is it seems that certainly since 2004, when David Robb wrote a book called Operation Hollywood, which kind of broke this story open, since then they've been extremely tight lipped and extremely resistant to showing anyone the files and the other records that they have of this collaboration with the entertainment industry. So we've only been able to get bits and pieces. There's probably. five times as much, ten times as much possibly more than that um, than what we already have but nonetheless over a period of three and a half years maybe I've filed around a hundred freedom of information requests I guess in total for various different documents and records to do with this with various different branches of the military and with the DOD kind of overall the central DOD themselves so This is what came back, or at least the stuff that came back that we used for the book, is around 4,000 pages of all sorts of stuff, really. Uh, The DOD actually maintains a database, a not very complete database. In fact, it's only about half complete uh, of their collaboration with film producers. And that provided some useful data. We got thousands of pages of just weekly reports like diaries, office diaries, from the military's entertainment liaison offices. So week to week, we know what they've actually been doing for most of the last several years. Um, But there again, that's a patchy record. The earliest they go back is 2008. So what they were doing between 2002, say, and 2008, on the whole, we don't know. Um, In a lot of other cases, like the Air Force, I've only been able to get three or four years covering some of the last decade. So you see what I mean, that... This is a patchy, incomplete record, but nonetheless it does constitute thousands of pages of documents. And I don't know how to quantify it, but probably dozens of examples of very politicized manipulations and changes and even politicized censorship of entertainment products. So that's what we've been able to put together through these many, many dozens of FOIA requests.
0: So you have patchy records and... Maybe you know incomplete documentation of what's going on in this collaboration. But when you ask for records, are there are there files that, and then any examples that may stand out to you? Are there are there movies or TV shows you wanted files for, and they said no, sorry, we just we're not giving these up to you.
1: Um, well, they said they didn't have any files on quite a number of films that I asked them about. I mean, this is the thing. I will file. Quite often I will file a FOIA request asking for, say, uh, folders in their archives or just communications with filmmakers and script notes that passed between them. Um, and I will ask for, say, 20 different titles, different films and TV shows that I've chosen out of the many, many hundreds that they've worked on. And sometimes what will come back is, you know, four, five, six of those products they'll actually provide me with information on or sometimes even less than that. Whether this is because they're refusing to find these, or whether this is because they just routinely destroy them as soon as that project is over, they just delete all of it so that no one can ask for it under FOIA, I'm not entirely sure. I'm guessing it's the latter. I think they have a culture of destroying these records, because in many of these cases, I know that script notes and communications passed between the Pentagon and the producers, so where are they? They must have been deleted if they can't now be be found. So therefore, I can only assume from this and extrapolate from this that they just routinely delete their interactions, the records of their interactions with Hollywood. And it seems that the CIA is much the same. Um, If you read their Inspector General's report on their liaison with the entertainment industry, it basically says that for the period 2006 to 2012, very little records remain. On most of the stuff they worked on, nothing. There's no paper trail at all. So in many cases, we just don't know what they've been
0: doing. Now let's get into why you would do all this work. Uh, why is it important to pay attention and take an interest in these relationships that uh, the CIA or the Pentagon is forming with the producers or directors of these productions for people who maybe are wondering why this could be um, a a public interest issue, something that they should be concerned about?
1: Um, I guess the most obvious reason why it's a public public interest issue is because we all watch these things, or at least pretty much all of us does. I know some people like to turn down their nose at Hollywood and mass entertainment. But deep down, the vast majority of people engage with some of this to some extent. And we discovered, for example, the DoD has been involved in maybe 800 movies and over a thousand TV shows. That's quite substantial. That means in your life, you have probably watched dozens, maybe even hundreds of entertainment products that have been through the pentagon's filtering system um and been subject to their input and manipulation in a lot of cases so i think that's why it matters deep down more people watch hollywood movies than watch the nightly news so my guess is it probably has a bigger influence on and i am just guessing here a bigger influence on their world views and their political views and what they do find acceptable and unacceptable so There's that element to it. There is also that I think most people are completely unaware of this. Most people wouldn't think when they go and watch a Transformers movie that the script for that movie has been reviewed multiple times by the Pentagon and rewritten to suit their PR interests, to suit their political concerns, to suit their kind of general propaganda aims in terms of what they want the public to believe and not just about them, but, you know, about the world in general. Most people, I think, are completely unaware that that process even goes on, let alone how profound it can be and how much it can change a film. I mean, this is one of the things we focused on in the book, is the extent to which politically subversive material, and by subversive we mean that in quite a basic sense, I mean, um, anti-war or anti-security state or anti-big corporate power. Whenever anything that kind of reflects on that, that or advances those kinds of ideas appears in these scripts, it seems to get removed, whether it's the CIA or the DOD or in some cases other agencies as well. There is a systematic process of making Hollywood less politically subversive, but also, I would argue, less creative, less creatively free to pursue uh, a project in kind of whatever direction it takes you. Instead, if you want to get military support, you have to give them your script, they read it, they tell you what to change or remove from it, and then they come and sit on set and watch you filming to ensure that you don't deviate from that script. And you have to sign a contract with them saying that you won't. So it has an impact on the political freedom of entertainment producers, but also on their creative freedom as well. And we lose out in that. We, the audience for these products, we lose out. So that's why I think it's a a public interest issue.
0: So let's uh, get into some examples. And I want to start with a film that probably isn't an obvious uh, victim or, I guess, an obvious candidate for propaganda. But uh, it 's a movie that I actually watched, and I would have never been able to guess that it had any sort of influence by the government but contact had <laughs> to you had they had to rewrite entire dialogue as you uh, describe in your book because of how it was um, targeting or presenting uh, the military isn 't that correct
1: yeah absolutely um, well with contact, I mean I laughed there because it is such a it is one of those movies that watching it, you'd, you wouldn't you would suspect that this was in some way a piece of propaganda, or not from the military's point of view anyway. But, I mean, their presence in the movie is in a couple of scenes. There's like, I think there's one where a jeep pulls up and there's a couple of National Guard soldiers running about. There's another one with a couple of helicopters. But that's basically it. There's very, very little that they actually gave the filmmakers in exchange for this influence over the script. But... In the DOD's database, we found an entry on Contact that said essentially that in the script that they reviewed, there was a lot of silly military depiction and that they civilianized most of the military roles in the film, thereby distancing themselves from action and dialogue and people doing things that they didn't want military characters to be doing or saying. And so we couldn't get full script notes on this movie Um, I have asked, they said, all they've really got is this database entry. But okay, working from that, I found a draft copy of the script from very shortly before they approached the Pentagon in the first place and asked them for help, went through it, compared that to the movie and saw that, for example, there's a scene, it's like a White House briefing where they're discussing how they found these um, uh, engineering schematics hidden within a code from a distant planet that they think is an extraterrestrial signal. And they're speculating about what these schematics, what these uh, engineering diagrams could be for. And in the original script, it's the military who are being really paranoid and saying, oh, it could be a, you know, we build it and the entire vegan army pours out and takes over the world. Or it could be a doomsday machine or all of this kind of stuff. And our main character, Ellie, played by Jodie Foster, she pushes back against this. And she says, no, no, this is just, you know, Cold War paranoia. This is right out of the War of the Worlds. In the finished version, it's not the military who are really par- paranoid. It's the national security advisor. So it's a civilian member of the government, not a military one, who is being, you know, paranoid and neurotic and aggressive and bullish. And that uh, that line where Ellie pushes back against this was just taken out. It was just removed from the script for no obvious reason. Um, so there's that. There's another sequence that was stripped out entirely where – Uh, You know how in the film they build this, like, giant wormhole machine or whatever it is, this transport device? Yeah. Um, There's a sequence where the – I think it's the president is addressing the UN and talking about how this is a crossing the Rubicon moment and we're entering a new era of exploration rather than warfare. And the script describes a helicopter flying up towards the construction site for this big wormhole machine. And it says surrounding the site – is the detritus of 20th century war making. So you have this very powerful symbolism of how, you know, uh, this vision of a future where we can move on from the military industrial complex. We can move on from having our, you know, our best resources and our finest minds devoting to just creating the best weapon. And we can actually escape from that and move into an age where it's more about Exploration and discovery and the wonders of the universe. And that's quite powerful. So that got removed because it was in some way anti-military. So the whole philosophy of that film was compromised. And it remains, I, I would say, quite a philosophically strong film and one that is quite critical in some ways of the 20th century politics and all of that. But in terms of it taking stabs at the military... They basically got removed, all in exchange for, like I say, a jeep, a few soldiers, and a couple of helicopters. And we just don't think that's right. you know. We just don't think that's fair.
0: It shows how uh, far they'll go just to get so little for a film. Like It can mm. just be for a short scene in the film, but they'll hinge that on the integrity of the project. Uh, so you bring up this concept of... Uh, civilianizing uh, films one could even say demilitarizing film Mm -hmm. stories and I think when it's most prevalent is really uh, I was reading about what you write with the Hulk in the Marvel Cinematic Universe Um, so maybe you want to talk within the context of the Marvel films which have huge amounts of Pentagon influence about why it's so important to make viewers... Why does the Pentagon think it's so important to not appear like there's a lot of military action going on?
1: That's an interesting question. I mean, with Hulk, uh, just to be sure, we're talking about the 2003 version directed by Ang Lee. Oh, yeah. So this is... Yeah. Um, just so that people aren't getting confused, because obviously there's quite a lot of different Hulk movies and all the rest of it. Um This is one where we actually managed to get the full folder from the Marine Corps detailing essentially most of their collaboration on this film and a very, very complex and detailed set of script notes that they sent to the producers. And they admit at the top of the notes, they say, normally we wouldn't do this, but in this one, we've had to make pretty radical changes in order to accommodate all of our concerns about the script. And this included things like, Changing the lab that Bruce Banner's father works at, changing that from a military lab to a civilian one, changing the guy that ran it from a military character to a civilian character, or at least an ex-military, you know, working for some private company, private corporation, things like this. Um, In fact, the most, to get slightly off topic, but the most astonishing change, this is possibly the one that, that bothers me the most, is that... Later on in the film when the Pentagon and the government are actually chasing down the Hulk and trying to capture him the code name in the original script the code name for that operation was Ranch Hand like a guy trying to lasso a bull or whatever they the Pentagon wanted that changed because Ranch Hand is the name of a real life Pentagon operation where they dropped millions of gallons of herbicides and other agricultural poisons all over Vietnam and rendered millions of acres of Vietnam basically infertile, dead land. And they didn't want people in any way being reminded of that. So the code name got changed. And it's like, this is in a Hulk movie. How many people who go to watch a Hulk movie are really going to then go and Google the phrase ranch hand and find out about this? I mean, seriously. But this is the extent to which they will influence a script. And in particular, this. Technique of civilianizing anything that's troublesome, anything that they don't like, that they can't just rip out of the movie, they civilianize it. They say, turn this into a private contractor or someone who works for the, another government department or the White House or whatever. So the effect of that is that in an awful lot of films and TV shows as well, the problems of the world are portrayed as not resulting from the military their portrayed is resulting from other places, other institutions, other people. And so this reduces the military role to either a supportive one or a heroic one, where they're rescuing people and fighting the bad guys. And so, as a result, a true portrayal of the military, or even just a kind of complex and some might say balanced, I mean, I hate the word balanced, but... Um, <laughs> You know, even that kind of portrayal where you say, well, OK, sometimes the military's good, sometimes they're bad. Even that becomes impossible in these films. No, the military has to be portrayed in positive terms. That's the result of this. While, like I say, all the problems of the world are the fault of, you know, the White House or the Department of Agriculture or some private business or just, you know, general human sin or whatever else. But anything but the military.
0: It also dampens... I I would think uh, people's awareness of just how vast the military-industrial complex is in the world because, you know, whether good or bad, it almost seems like the military is consciously through television and film making certain that people don't become aware of how the military is in their basic daily lives.
1: Which is ironic since... (laughs) one of the ways in which they are prominent in our basic daily lives is through entertainment media and other media for that matter. Um, But yeah, yeah, I totally agree with you. A lot of this does seem to come down to uh, just not wanting people to look in that direction because sometimes it's such a little thing. It'll be one joke that they don't like, but they'll just say, no, you've got to take that out of the scene. So that's a form of political censorship but it shows that they have this mentality. Like I say, they're they're quite paranoid. That you know, one line or one you know, one element of one line, you know, a code name for an operation to capture the Hulk, that bothers them. But it's because they don't want anything in there that might lead people in that direction. They want it to be almost like a, a pure work of art that suits their agenda. And oftentimes, that's what these films end up as.
0: Let's talk a little bit about uh, the interview, the, uh, the, 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 <laughs> yeah. the the comedy with uh, Seth Rogen and James Franco. And particularly what I want to have you address is uh, the way you describe what this movie did. Uh, you say this is a – in the book, it's, uh, the sentence is this is a case study about a film as a weapon and uh, – I, so my question to you is, was there some kind of innovation with this film? You know, I know that in your book, you have a tough time pinning down the exact amount of CIA influence and whether it was overt or covert or indirect. But is there something about this film that took propaganda to a new level? I would say yes,
1: Um that isn't perhaps the point that where we're going with this in the book, but I can see why you're saying that because, well, let me just ask it this way as a kind of rhetorical question. How many other films have ever been made that you've ever seen that depicted the American government assassinating the leader of a foreign government in a completely knowing, willful, conspiratorial way? How many films have ever actually been made with that storyline? And, Looking at it another way, how many leaders, world leaders, I mean, as corrupt and terrible as I'm sure the North Korean government is, it's like they're the whipping boys in public relations. They're one of those very few nations that you could depict that scenario and it not be kind of repulsive. But even beyond that, there's the effect on the domestic audience. Let's not forget In the 1970s and on into the 1980s, the CIA were at least officially banned from conducting political assassinations, especially against the leaders of foreign countries. This is one of those things that came out of the church committee. So now, 20 years on from that, we're in a situation where – I suppose now we're nearly 30 years on, but um, (laughs) – We're in this situation where that's a storyline that can be in a Hollywood movie. And not just a movie, not like a spy thriller or something, but an absurd lowbrow comedy. So yes, I would say it has taken propaganda to a new level. It has incorporated ideas that are so much more explicit than what has previously been possible, or at least been acceptable in terms of a Hollywood movie. And that, like I say at the start of of at least my lifetime this was a politically controversial issue this was something that you know people didn't like the idea of the cia running around the world killing the leaders of foreign countries now it's something we make jokes about that's that's how much things have changed you know
0: that is the whole central premise for people who are listening and don't know about this film the whole thing was about assassinating the leader of North Korea. And in fact, uh, one more quick thing to note is w- weren't they dropping USB sticks with the film into North Korea? Is, is that correct?
1: Yeah, there was this big, um, I guess we can call it an operation, because to my mind it just has to be a CIA operation, where so called North Korean defectors and South Korean activists were sending tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, of copies of this film on DVDs and on USB sticks, and attaching them to balloons and basically, you know, pushing them towards the North Korean countryside as part of some, I don't know, attempt at destabilization. But I'm wondering, how many North Koreans, particularly living in rural North Korea, have computers with USB drives? So have they not just accomplished littering the beautiful North Korean countryside with lots of cheap plastic crap built in China? But nonetheless, this is reminiscent – not even reminiscent – this is identical to what the CIA were doing in the 1950s, 1960s when they were sending recordings, books, other artworks, massive you know copies of pamphlets on by the thousands if not by the millions and dropping them into Eastern Bloc, Soviet countries, other communist countries as part of their propaganda war at that time. So the fact that it's now going on with this film – It just, like I say, reminds me so much. It's identical to those CIA operations, and I can only guess that it is.
0: And so um, uh, one of the final examples I want to bring into this interview is uh, The Kingdom from 2007. Uh, Director Peter Berg and, of course, Jamie Foxx and Jennifer Garner are in this film, and uh, they are... They're FBI agents, right? And so the reason I want to also raise this is I was I was I was drawn into your book because um, multiple films when it becomes. Relevant, uh, you do reference the work of Jack Shaheen, who uh, recently died and just did fabulous work documenting over the last twenty to thirty decades uh, sorry uh, thirty years uh, the portrayals of Arabs and or Muslims uh, throughout the world and this movie, in particular, was in his opinion, one of the worst films of the last. Uh, in the 2000s one of the worst films when it came to depictions but again uh, I guess get into this because there there is just so much propaganda and even though I think people might have forgotten about the kingdom it isn't a memorable film there's no reason why people would remember it but I'm also thinking mm-hmm. maybe that's deliberate maybe part of the propaganda is to make sure that it doesn't turn into a subversive film that will make a statement about the role of the United States in a foreign country. And, and that's the key is that we're supposed to forget and not remember and and care about what the FBI is doing. That is supposed to be a general representation that we mostly would uh, think if we were propagandized, that we would think, well, this is just what the FBI does.
1: Mm. Well, just to um, quote from a, a document on, on another Peter Berg film, Lone Survivor, the uh, Army's Entertainment Liaison Office said of the people going to watch this that audiences unknowingly go and watch a two-hour infomercial for U.S. Special Forces. So they're quite aware that of the, the value of something that, like you say, is forgotten quickly, at least in a conscious way, but nonetheless still reinforces certain prejudices, certain values, certain ideas – And that if people get that over and over again, and they forget about the individual films themselves, but they remember the prejudices and the values and the ideas, then is that not mission accomplished? So with The Kingdom, Peter Berg actually, to his credit, he tried to make a more honest film. He did actually go out to, I think, several different Middle Eastern countries and spend some time there and try and talk to people and, you know, actually get a real feel for the place. He read books about this. He actually did some research, more than most Hollywood producers would bother to do if they were just making a, you know, generic FBI cops chasing terrorists story, which is basically what it is. So he did. I think he honestly tried. Um, Maybe I'm giving him too much credit. People can watch the film and make their own minds up about Peter Berg himself as an individual. But. This is an example of someone who set out to make a more complex three-dimensional movie, but due to, we guess, a combination of government involvement, studio input, and his own ideas, values, and prejudices coming to the surface, ended up being a pretty racist, very colonialist depiction of the Middle East and of the Western, or at least the US, role in the Middle East. And the whole thing is... Loosely based around the investigation of the USS Cole bombing. But, I mean, honestly, the the interesting stuff in that investigation has nothing to do with the resistance from the local government and what have you. It's got a lot more to do with what was happening with the FBI's communications with the CIA. Obviously, the film would not pick that stuff up. But, yeah, it's an example of a filmmaker who I think genuinely tried but completely failed to make a movie that did go against the grain. And this is one of the reasons why people forget it, is because it's just another investigation detective thriller that happens to be set in the Middle East that portrays Arabs and Arab Muslims in particular in the same way that almost every film does. And yeah, just to pick up on what you were saying about Jack Shaheen, his, his research in this is astonishing. This is a guy who... I don't know how many hundreds or possibly even thousands of different films and, and other depictions of Arabs and Arab Muslims in entertainment that he studied. But it it's as comprehensive a study of a, a genre of film or at least, a, I suppose, a tendency and a prejudice in film that I think anyone's ever done. Um, a huge amount of respect for the guy. And, yeah, very sad that he's he's died.
0: Well, I also just want to note that uh, before I move on to, you know, one of the final questions I have for you is just this was a person who was doing research before it was automated in the sense that now it's very easy to scroll through a script and find that nugget that you want to extrapolate and bring attention to because of its propaganda value. But he was putting in every single one of these films or, you know, uh, copies of uh, television episodes and watching all of these and trying to find that uh, cartoonish or caricaturish representation that he had heard about Um, and he got a lot of these examples from word of mouth. So, I mean, it's just tremendous like what you say. I I, I, I just want to overemphasize what he did because it was such a good contribution to understanding and even though it may be not all of it is national security cinema it's a kind of a uh, representation that serves our, our, our the U.S. military and the CIA greatly.
1: Yeah, it's kind of like the racist cousin of national security cinema, if you like.
0: So I I wanted to ask you about if we go back uh, to 1930s or we go back to 1940s Hollywood, um, and I'll keep it general. Uh, the from what I've read, if if and and people who are more familiar with that era, like what is referred to as classic cinema, they may have some knowledge of, of this film called Sergeant York, which, char- which uh, starred Gary Cooper. And I won't get too much into the example, but I just I want to raise this era because about this time, the U.S. in 1940-41 was still reluctant to get fully involved in World War II. And then also, if you read... Um, about directors. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm in the middle of this book, uh, by Mark Harris called Five Came Back. It's about five different movie directors, uh, John Huston, George Stevens, John Ford, William Wyler, and Frank Capra, who's kind of a fascist. And, um, he, and, and he gets into, uh, when he's Outlining and chronicling what was going on with these directors, you really get this full sense that Hollywood and the studio heads uh, had no interest in political films. They did not want any message pictures. They went above and beyond to kill pictures when uh, at these five directors were trying to make movies that made any statements. However, they're very easily able to transition into making pro-intervention films for the purpose of getting the public interested in world war 2 and you know the issue of whether you need to fight and stop adolf hitler and the nazis aside which is a, obviously a definitely huge issue and and you can go on and debate history for forever and ever isn't my point i'm more interested in your reaction to just how the culture of Hollywood maybe has supported and been so welcome to the FBI or the CIA or even the military in working together. Because there seems to be something about the way the culture was in Hollywood that makes it so easy for this to go on, that makes it so easy to sacrifice subversive messages.
1: Well, I guess, I mean, certainly you're right. Cinema played a considerable role in shifting U.S. public opinion. Because like you say, in certainly 1939, 1940, most Americans had no great interest in World War II. They weren't interested. They didn't think America should be involved. Um, The U.S. establishment, on the other hand, seems to have been relatively pro-intervention and was actually actively working to try and change public opinion so that they would have their excuse for engaging with this war. But you do see, and I don't know about the specific film you just mentioned, but there are others from this period, both supported by the FBI and by the Pentagon, that were obviously aimed at encouraging the public to see the war as relevant to America, to see it as a problem that America had to deal with, essentially. And, I mean, since then, how many hundreds of films have we had that basically depict America's role in the world? Its geopolitical role, not just as a important and you know something we have to do, uh, but also as a benevolent force, which I find kind of laughable in most instances. But in that period, like you say, it is strange that they went from saying, "Oh no, no, we don't want, to, we don't want to get into the whole communist thing. We don't want to get into politics." In fact, the early versions of the production code, which was something essentially written by the industry in order to control and censor itself one of the provisions in that was essentially that you know you're not really supposed to depict government agencies or departments in any way and that you're not really supposed to engage in politics that you can you know you can write stories about everyday human drama i don't know a watchmaker who's having an affair with his neighbor whatever but don't get into those other issues they're just outside of the realm of entertainment and yet at some point somewhere along the line Something shifted and the priority now became, oh, no, we, we have to promote the war. We have to promote what the government want us to because this is kind of necessary and right for the future of the nation. And I think for a lot of people, that is actually why they did it. They genuinely thought this was going to be good for the future of the country. Um, with others, I mean, the, the they weren't the Air Force at that point. They were the U.S. Army Air Forces. They weren't a separate entity until, I think, after the war. But they set up the first motion picture unit, which was effectively a studio in Hollywood, where they, and they recruited people like Ronald Reagan, Jimmy Stewart, you know, very big names, or at least what are now big names from within Hollywood, and they made films. Partly they were training movies, internal training movies, to be, you know, treat... Uh, to train up the new recruits and teach them how aircraft work and stuff like that, but also ordinary Hollywood-style movies, but with a propaganda message attached in order to promote recruitment and also promote involvement in the war. And this happened without anyone really objecting. It's not like there were dozens of Hollywood people saying, this isn't right. We shouldn't have the military running its own studio from within Hollywood in order to promote war. So... I think deep down, most of these people don't have a huge amount of principles, maybe, that they'd kind of prefer to just be making entertainment. Or, I mean, these days, a lot of people in Hollywood pay lip service to liberal causes. But when it comes down to it, an awful lot of them then go and make a movie with the CIA or someone. So I don't find their political credentials, whatever those credentials might be, I don't find them very convincing
0: it's probably fair to say that politics isn't their ideology it's it's that at their core a lot of these producers or directors are just nationalists and and is that kind of like what you find when you're analyzing is it that the willingness to get involved and collaborate with these agencies is just that they're they're nationalists or at worst they're jingoists
1: Um, Well, certainly in the period you're talking about, I would say a lot of those people did just seem to be nationalists. They were just driven by some kind of nationalism or patriotism, um, which in some ways might have, you know, you could defend and say was a good thing. I mean, it's very difficult to look back at the Second World War and say how, how things could have been different. Well, in one way, it's very easy to look back and say, oh, it could have been different. <laughs> but in another way, it's like, yeah, but how do you even extrapolate that? It was an, you know, a war that encompassed like half the, the nations in the world. Um,
0: and I just want to be clear. I'm by no means saying that, like, we should have just let Nazi Germany go. I'm, I'm making I'm a, 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 just a point about the ease of propaganda slipping into Hollywood.
1: Oh, of course, of course. I mean, and I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. Would things have been better if America hadn't entered World War II? I have no idea how you would even figure that out, the answer to that. So, um, yeah, let's not get into that debate. (laughs) But certainly at that point, I think that most of those people were motivated by nationalism. These days, in all honesty, I think it's partly because Hollywood is so kind of starved of creativity or has such an uncreative culture, such a sort of anti-risk taking culture that. They're stuck on making all of these reboots and remakes and soft reboots and relaunches and sequels, blah, 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 that they kind of have to go to the government to try and find something new. It's like, okay, we're making another alien fighting robot movie. But at least in this one, we can get that latest generation fighter jet that no one's seen before. So at least there's something new in this otherwise extremely tedious and hackneyed film that we're churning out. I think a lot of it actually comes down to that that they can get something a little bit different and a little bit new to try and drag their movie from being just mediocre into being something that might actually get people excited
0: so I have two questions for you before we wrap in. and it's interesting that you say uh, remake and lack of creativity, one of the films that you do highlight uh, briefly um, you know in in your book is 3 days of the condor i'm reading that mira cervino has now signed up for a remake of this film which is quite oh, dre- is quite dreadful to think that they're going to remake this film uh so that's one thing and, and but the question i had for you is uh you you talk about how it's possible that the cia had some influence over three days of the condor. Certainly you mentioned, uh, John Rizzo, the former legal top legal counsel for the CIA, um, their top uh, lawyer for when you could fire off drones and kill people abroad. And the uh, fact that he thought it was possible, um, or, you know, he's talking about how the scenes look a lot like, uh, they could be locations that the CIA had for covert operations. And, uh, but there, it's a very, very negative uh, portrayal of the CIA. And so is there something about the period of the 1970s where you think maybe the CIA just admitted we have to remain – we have to retain our relationships, but we're not in a power position to get the glorification that we were receiving f- 10 or 15 years ago?
1: Well, we actually – I mean Matt and I, um, we actually – tried to figure out the answer to this question or this more general question of the CIA being willing to support products that don't portray them in a positive light. We did try and figure it out in an uh, article we wrote for the American Journal of Economics and Sociology, who did a whole issue based on this topic – The way we looked at it is basically there's two different ways. You can either say it's because the CIA doesn't have anywhere near the number of cinematic assets in terms of locations, props, vehicles, people and so on that the Pentagon has. So they can't wield as much influence over their portrayal in a film. But I don't think that's actually true because we've found quite a few examples of when the CIA have been able to have quite a distinct effect on their portrayal in films. So... We're not sure about that one. The other way of looking at it is that actually the CIA is quite content with that depiction, that they kind of like being depicted as a uh, shadowy, potentially murderous, certainly deceitful organization. As long as they're depicted as a necessary response to a dangerous, deceitful, terrifying world that's full of threats— So as long as the world out there seems chaotic and dark and mysterious and scary and as long as therefore the CIA seem like the logical response to that, it doesn't really matter if you depict them torturing people, assassinating, kidnapping, carrying out terrorist attacks, whatever else. They'll live with that. In fact, it it seems almost that they're happy with it, that that was in some ways their preferred, you know, depiction in cinema because think about it: Have you ever seen a film that actually portrayed the CIA as unremittingly good? I can't. I've watched dozens, of, you know, maybe hundreds of films like that, but I don't think I've ever seen one that just said the CIA are good guys, and that's all there is to it.
0: Yeah, even the films that uh, have propaganda do make a, a, a point to suggest that the agents are operating in grey areas. So that's definitely true. So let's let's end um, on. Um, I know you spend a couple, uh, you, sp- you spend some part of the book on uh, two directors who are doing work that you feel is challenging to the culture of allowing Defense Department or CIA influence. Uh, but I'm going to be a little more specific and and, and and, you know, not try to tackle all of that. That'll be for hopefully people picking up your excellent book. Um, and certainly you can pick a film from either of these two directors, which I'm referring to, but I'm just, I'm just thinking a good way to end would be to say to people that, you know, I'm, I love cinema. I take you to be somebody who loves cinema too. So are there, um, a couple films off the top of your head that you think are good shining examples against this propaganda influence that you're unveiling or revealing through this book?
1: Well, I mean, my favorite example uh, would have to be Starship Troopers. Like you say, we do get into both Oliver Stone's work and Paul Verhoeven's work as examples of directors who kind of ran up against the system and tried to resist it somehow and with some success in both cases, quite considerable success, you might argue, Um but Starship Troopers is a weird one because that kind of slipped through the Hollywood system in that the uh, the way Verhoeven describes it, things at Sony at that time were so chaotic that executives were only lasting two or three months before they got fired and replaced by someone else. So there wasn't really a lot of supervision on what they were doing on this movie. And as a result, they managed to make this film that he says it's like a hundred million dollar arthouse movie that... It has these two narratives, twin narratives, of one is young, good-looking people going to fight in the war against the giant bugs. The other is that they're all fascists. So he managed to make a film that on the surface looks like a Michael Bay-style or Peter Berg-style pro-war, pro-military movie, but that underneath is completely running against that. And the only reason he really got away with it is because things at Sony weren't working properly. So this is a, I guess, a lesson is that it's very hard to do that, but it is possible. And sometimes when the studio machine breaks down a little bit and you don't get involved with the CIA and the Pentagon and anyone like that, you can make a really good movie. Um, And I don't know what I mean. people can think what they like about Starship Troopers as a piece of entertainment or whatever. Um, I'm just saying it's possible there are other examples that uh, we could talk about, but Hollywood still, sometimes they get it right. They do. They do make a film like that.
0: All right. Well, thank you, Tom, for uh, joining the show to talk about your book again, for people who have been listening. Uh, this book is called national security cinema, the shocking new evidence of government control in Hollywood. I know that it's available to purchase through Amazon. Uh, but, uh, If there's any other way you think they should get the book, uh, feel free to uh, throw that out there now, Um, Tom. And also, uh, to be clear, if people want to find your regular work, it's at spyculture.com.
1: Yeah, sure, sure. That's my site. That's where you can get my podcast and read some of these documents and things. And... Currently, the book is only available through Amazon. We are looking at least at making the e-book available through other places because I know and I appreciate why so many people have a bit of an issue with Amazon. But please, maybe make an exception for this one. And, you know, I'm not just saying that because it's my own book. I'm also saying that because I think this is a really important book. We did not do this lightly. We wrote this with a lot of hard work, a lot of passion. And like you say, we love cinema, both of us. Me and you, me and Matt as well, we all love cinema and we just, I don't know, we'd like it to be better.
0: (laughs) Well, I think it comes from a place of acknowledging that we should contest it, like we should challenge the culture. We shouldn't just seed it Mm. and let CIA and the Pentagon have dominion over this work. Um, And there's no reason why we should let them... Uh, be able to define every representation of the war on terrorism or any sort of military intervention, whether it's historical or present, uh, we should be able to see work that even at, like, at at minimum is like Three Kings, which David O. Russell did. And it's actually a heist movie and it's not really about war or anything, but it has all of the, in the periphery, all of everything that was real about what was going on in Iraq. And so, like... Mm -hmm we at the very least should get reality when we're watching our films
1: yeah or at least entertainment that's free from propaganda at least that much
0: (laughs) all right well um thank you um and um hopefully you know sometime down the line we can revisit this conversation because it's definitely an important one to keep coming back to
1: for sure thanks for having me
0: That does it for this week's unauthorized disclosure. A special thanks to Dwayne, Philip, Patron DNH, Michael, Michael, Safar, Leslie, Ben, Rowan, Regelio, and Hannah. All of these people became patrons or increased their pledges in the past week. And some of that was in response to the posting of our patron exclusive content, which uh, Rania and myself, we had a discussion about Venezuela, uh, which we just made available to patrons as a show of gratitude to all of your continued support. And uh, once we do reach that 1000 mark, we've already got plans for the uh, exclusive episode, which is uh, influenced by suggestions from patrons. Uh, the one that we're pretty certain we're going to do is a uh, discussion about our backgrounds. Um, just sharing how uh, Ranya and myself ended up getting involved in uh, podcasting or journalism in general because we haven't really talked about our backstories on this show before. And uh, so that would be for patrons only when we post. So uh, if you're not a patron yet, I highly encourage you to support this show. So uh, we should be back. Uh, soon with another episode of the Unauthorized Disclosure Podcast. Thank you.